There were so many times my mother took me to the movies. When you're too young to drive yourself, it requires a lot of advanced planning. Sometimes she dropped me off. Other times she picked me up. And in between those scheduled drop-offs and pickups, I fell deeply in love with cinema. Man, I saw everything. Police Academy, Back to the Future, Spies Like Us, Fletch. Real genius. Probably saw Rambo 2 and Temple of Doom five times apiece. She and my father even took me to see Witness when I was 14. I'm thinking they couldn't get a sitter that night. Movies were a passion she sensed in me very early on. And when I begged her to please bring home multicolored Sharpies and other magic markers from her robust office supply closet, she never failed to deliver. And then she would watch me from afar as I huddled over the kitchen table drawing movie logos freehand. And I would then write reviews for said films and store them in a binder. Naturally, she kept those reviews, all of them. And when I grew up and started writing slightly more mature reviews for the college newspaper, well, she kept those too. I wouldn't say my mother loved film like I did, but she did have great cinematic instincts. This is a woman who dragged the Kamlik children to the local theater in June of 81 to screen what was pitched to us at the time as a great romance, a movie everyone was raving about. What was it called? Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) Not sure it was a romance, but man, she was batting a thousand. Two years later, she once again dragged the reluctant Jim and Dennis Kamlik to the Fine Arts Theater in Brookfield, Connecticut to see this little holiday movie called A Christmas Story. We rolled our eyes just like we did at the initial prospect of seeing Indiana Jones. Who wanted to see some cornball Christmas movie with no-name stars? But once again, my mother was spot on, and the three of us found ourselves laughing for 90 straight minutes. In fact, I'd never seen my mom laugh so hard in my entire life. Watching Melinda Dillon dress poor Randy in layers of snow garb, only to see the kid fall to the snow, unable to stand back up, I honestly thought my mother was going to fall on the floor herself. Her laughter that night is burned in my memory. A Christmas Story became a movie we would watch often, with special thanks to TNT and TBS, who in the late 90s had the incredible idea of running it for 24 straight hours every Christmas. As I grew older, my mother continued to drop me off. Only this time it would be to accompany me to Manhattan and patiently wait for me at a McDonald's as I interviewed for an internship at 20th Century Fox in a building across 57th Street. She knew entertainment would be my calling. Nothing I've done since that internship surprised her. She has been there for me every step of the way, dropping me off, picking me up, rooting me on. The man I am today and the things I've accomplished, I owe all to her. She was the kindest and most generous person I've ever known. And without a doubt, she was the emotional backbone of the Kamlik family, just like Mother Parker was in A Christmas Story. So I proudly dedicate this episode to my mother, Barbara Kamlik. I think she would have enjoyed this podcast, probably would have listened to it twice. I love you, Mom. I miss you immensely. I could feel the Christmas noose beginning to tighten. Maybe... What happened next was inevitable. Ralphie, what would you like for Christmas? Horrified, I heard myself blurted out. I want an official red rider carbon action to join Joe Ainsbell Ooh. No, 
Shoot your eye out. Oh, no, it was the classic mother BB gun block. <laughs> You'll shoot your eye out. That deadly phrase uttered many times before by hundreds of mothers was not surmountable by any means known to kiddom. But such was my mania, my desire for a Red Rider carbine, that I immediately began to rebuild the dike. <laughs> I was just kidding. Even though Flick is getting one. I guess I just like some Tinker Toys. I couldn't believe my own ears. Tinker Toys? She never buy it. BB guns are dangerous. I don't want anybody shooting his eye out. Happy holidays, everybody. Welcome to the last episode of the year. Hard to believe. Guys, I got to tell you, had my hands full with this podcast this month, and it's only December 18th, but I did the Royal Tenenbaums with our buddy Nick Malone two weeks ago. And just this morning, I published LA Confidential with Jason Thompson, which was a really great discussion, by the way. I highly recommend you listening to that. And here we are tonight, closing out the year with a Christmas story. Now, I normally just do one episode a month. That's about all I can handle with the rigors of my, my job and, and life and whatnot. And here I am doing three episodes in one month, feeling a little bit overwhelmed. I feel like I almost need a producer. But listen, I'm all about giving quality podcasts back to the people for the holidays. What do you think about that, Scott? What do you think about those three movies? I think it's a fascinating collection of movies. I, I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not exactly sure I see the through line, except that, that they are all movies that are... Uh, kind of perfect in their own special ways. And I think they're, they're really interesting movies to talk about. Yeah, I think uh, L.A. Confidential was technically a Christmas movie, which is why we wanted to get that in before the end of the year. Welcome back to the show. Let's do some introductions. Scott, you haven't been on in over a year. Scott and I used to work together at Turner Broadcasting, which has now since become Warner Media. At the time, he was the CMO of CNN. And Scott, it's it's been over a year since you were on to talk deliverance, and I'm going to thank you one more time for indulging me. That because uh, there's not a lot of people that would have said yes to deliverance, but you said it without a lot of like a lot of pushback. Did you enjoy the experience? I actually loved it. I, I you know, when when we approach something like that, it, it the first thing I did, of course, was go back and watch deliverance. I had, of course, had seen it uh, several times over my many many decades of life, but I had not. I just hadn't, I just, you know, just rediscovered it. And I, when, when you come back to a movie um, at any given age, you bring all sorts of other stuff to it and you see it through new eyes. And um, that's a really stunning film. And it only increased my uh, appreciation for the movie. And of course, sent me down the rabbit hole of like all the different stories about the movie and who was in, supposed to be in it and stuff. So it was great. What does it say about you that I asked you to do Deliverance last year and tonight we're doing a Christmas story? Um, I don't see a larger theme at play there. Is there one? I don't think so. The only theme I would say is that they are both very, the two movies are very much uh, driven by uh, authors. Uh, and, 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 and they're very, very personal uh, works by an author that was adapted by a Hollywood director. Um, and uh, that's about the only uh, through line. Probably if we had a psychologist as a, as a fourth member of this discussion, we could probably figure out there, there might be something else going on there, too. But um, it's, it's, it's just a great, it's a great movie. So we have to figure out for next year what, what the, the, the third uh, author-driven film will be. Well, if anybody was going to find the through line between those two films, it was going to be you. You found the James Dickey, Gene Shepard through line. So why am I not surprised? That's one of the things I, I most admire about you, Scott, is your, your uh, passion for film and film marketing. And uh, you're like me. I think you go down the rabbit hole quite a bit when you start getting into film research. I'm the same way. I'm happy to have you here. Um, we're going to be giving Scott the guest hosting reins 
this evening. I've seen him work a staff meeting at CNN back in the day, and, and which was very impressive to see him work a room. So I am not at all concerned that he can run a podcast. So I'm going to be stepping aside tonight and pulling up a chair next to my brother. Jim, you've been on the show like so many times that I think we need to give you your own parking space or key to the executive bathroom. I, I don't know. What, what is it that you're looking for? Is that an idle promise or are those items in the works? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen a t-shirt. I haven't seen a baseball cap. I haven't seen anything like that. Full disclosure, Dennis. Um, it's weird calling you Dennis. Weird, for, weird disclosure here. Um, I am only 50 minutes and eight seconds into LA Confidential. So okay. I don't know if that gives me the right to stay on this podcast. I usually try to keep up. But I have not. I ran out of time this afternoon. It's a long episode. Have you enjoyed it so far? Yeah, it's 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 really really good. And I've once again decided that I do not have the vocabulary of Jason Thompson. So I'm just going to go ahead and stop trying. I swear <laughs> to God, he's got words written down. He's like, I'm going to figure out opportunities to use these words. These words he says, I don't even think they're English words. Throw out a couple of gems. You got to get a lot of three syllable words tonight. That's about my limit. That's all good. Listen, welcome back. We had you on earlier this year. You did the good bad movies episode with Jason and Nick Malone, oh. and then I had you on not that long ago to talk about The Fugitive. And uh, tonight we're doing uh, 1983's Christmas Story. As I told you guys, when I when I start the year, I always try to map out um, what movies I want to do all throughout the year. Now, I don't have it all laid out all 12 months, but I definitely have a pretty good handle on it. Like I'm already six months in on 2024 and how I want to map out at least the first half of the year. So going back to the beginning of this year, I had earmarked this movie, A Christmas Story, for December. I definitely wanted to do this movie. It's personal to me, which we're going to get into in a, in a few minutes. But it's hard to believe this movie turned 40 years old last month. That's pretty cool. Nick Malone and I were talking about this the other day when we revisited the Royal Tenenbaums. Um, and we had talked about Nick had said that the Royal Tenenbaums to him is a perfect film. Now, perfect is a word that I don't throw around a whole hell of a lot. I did reference in that episode that I think uh, the Coen brothers, No Country for Old Men, is, is pretty damn close to perfection, in my opinion. But I will say that I think A Christmas Story is damn close to perfect. I think the movie is flawed. I think it's aged. I think it's fairly cheaply produced. It doesn't have a great look to it necessarily, but there's something about it. And I think it's probably just, you know, the observational comedy, the wit that the movie has. So I would say it's pretty damn close to perfect. How do you guys feel about it? Jim, I'll start with you. Cheaply produced? What are you talking it's about? It's got a, come on, it doesn't look great. It looks like have it's got a Have you seen the light lamp? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I guess I agree with all of those things. I mean, I don't think there's any CGI work in A Christmas Story, but for 19, uh, 1983, I think it's fantastic. I think it's aged very well. It was a period piece then. It's still a period piece. When I went to revisit the movie a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this, I was sort of stunned by the sequence in Higby's department store because it's enormous. It's like a, a gigantic set. I was like, wow, that looks like Macy's in New York. And it's clearly not supposed to be. It's supposed to be a small town, Indiana uh, department store. But um, but I, I was kind of stunned by that by that sequence. But I would say that, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to, to, to characterize a movie as perfect, because I, I, I what I've been thinking about that a lot of movies I would think are perfect in that they um, are trying to create a world and, and, and bring you to this world and give you an experience with it and just do it like with with sincerity and 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 enthusiasm and just just immerse you in that world and I think this movie does this really well and I think it's one of the the things that makes it makes it perfect for what it, it wanted to do but I think my list of perfect movies would be kind of long so I don't know if I would say you know 
you know, what my criteria actually are. But I love I love the characterization of this one. It's perfect. Give me one perfect movie from your list. Jim, do you have one off the top of your head? Is it Raiders? Is it something else? No, it's Shawshank is a perfect movie. Shawshank Redemption? I'm looking around here for the Shawshank poster, but the Rita Hayworth poster is, let's just call it eight feet to my left. And I was that's from Video Village, and I had it framed, but Shawshank's a perfect movie. I dare anybody. I dare Jason Thompson to disagree. That's the last time I'm going to mention his name. A lot of people would probably agree with you. That movie is treasured. I mean, I think that movie is yeah. as treasured as, as this one. And um, it's funny you referenced that movie because that movie's got narration in it just like this one does, yeah. which we'll probably touch on in a little bit. Scott, give me one. Tootsie. 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 Perfect film. Tootsie is a perfect movie. I mean, it, and I've revisited it a few times because, of course, I have grown children. I wanted to, them, you know, frequently I'll just say, now there's another movie I want you to watch that you, that came along well before you. And, and Toots, they were, they were floored by Tootsie. They, they just thought like, like how had they not, not seen it before or heard of it? It's, it, it's hilarious. It's just hilarious. Let me ask you a question. If we were to do Tootsie on Video Village, would you play the lead? The thing is, if we did Tootsie, it would, it would be, it would be tough because Why? I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could do the Dorothy uh, voice uh, with any justice. What I would, there's about five other parts I'd want to play. I think you could be Dustin Hoffman in that slap. What do you think? <laughs> I'm looking at him right now. I think it would be a perfect cast. Now, I don't know about the costuming. That script is as close to perfect a script as, as you could find. It's just brilliantly written, like hilariously funny, but also really smart and sharp. And it, it's a great, it's a great film. Tonight, we're going to talk about Christmas story, why the film matters, why it's so revered. Um, and more importantly, why it's endured the way it has, because this is a film that, you know, people still watch to this day every single year. So Scott's going to be our master of ceremonies. What do you say, Scott? You want to get this thing started? Yeah, let's talk about this. I, I, I just want to explain how I came to be the master of ceremonies for this discussion. Uh, you approached me, Dennis, and you said, you know, my brother and I would love to talk about a Christmas story. We have a personal, you know, strong personal feelings about the movie because we had seen it uh, when we were young. Uh, we got to explain. We saw it with our mom and it really means something a lot, a lot to us. So we're going to talk about it. We, need, we could use a third voice in that discussion. And I basically said back to you, I, I think this is really an important discussion because of the connection that you two have with it. And rather than me be a third person in this discussion, why don't I ask you about it? Why don't I, I talk to you guys about your relationship with this movie? My relationship with this movie is a little different because I saw it as an adult. Yep. Uh, it was, it was 1983. I was 23 years old. I'm older than you guys. I saw it as an adult in a movie theater with a bunch of friends of mine from high school who were also home from, you know, college or, or grad school, wherever we were at the time. And, uh, we all got, got a kick out of it. We thought it was a really funny comedy and, uh, from the guy who made Porky's <laughs> ironically. <laughs> and, um, and we really appreciated it. And now that I've, I've revisited the movie as a, as a dad, uh, you know, and shared it with my kids as they were growing up, but they're a, women who are like 29 and 25. I just don't have the same levels of, of connection with the movie. I'm so curious. I, I will be curious when we get to that part of the discussion to hear about your, your experiences with it at, at all ages, when you first saw it and then how you see it now as, as, as adult men. Uh, but let's just, let's just cover a little bit of background on the film. For those of you who don't know it or just know it vaguely as this movie that shows up all the time at Christmas on TBS and TNT and, and everybody watches it. Um, the movie was released in November of 1983. Low budget movie. It was a $3 million film. Um, it, it's initial worldwide gross was quite, 
quite impressive. It was about $120 million worldwide, 21 million of that was in the US. Um, but it, obviously, this movie has made many millions over the years in licensing revenue because it, it continues to be shown on uh, on on base on basic cable, which still pays uh, uh, for those rights. Uh, it was directed by Bob Clark. Yes, I mentioned him before because he is the guy who directed Porky's, but he had a very long career. He directed the Baby Geniuses movies. He directed Rhinestone. He directed um, a, a movie called Tribute that got a, an Oscar nomination for Jack Lemmon. Um, he, he was a, a major director. I actually marketed one of his movies, a movie uh, – called The American Clock that he made for TNT, uh, based on an Arthur Miller play, of all things, uh, that also starred Darren McGavin, who's in uh, Christmas Story. Porky's was so successful that came out, and I think that came out the year before in 82, and it was the heat that he had coming off of Porky's that allowed him to basically do any movie that he wanted, I guess, you know, putting it simply. And this was the project that he wanted to do next. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, if you really want to uh, sort of get a, a, an insight into what a Hollywood career is like when you're a, a, a director like Bob Clark, you read his Wikipedia page and read the range of movies uh, he, he made from his very first movie on, and you'll be quite surprised. Um, the movie was written by Gene Shepard. Um, Lee Brown, who's Gene Shepard's wife, was the co-author of the screenplay along with Bob Clark, who probably had just done a polish on it after Gene Shepard and Lee Brown wrote the initial. It's based on Gene Shepard's book, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. And Shepard is involved in the movie. You hear his voice throughout the movie because he's the narrator as the adult Ralphie. One thing you may also want to know is that Several other films and TV movies were made based on Gene Shepard's work that featured the Ralphie character, which is clearly, you know, Gene Shepard as a boy. Um, in the first of this, several of them were made for PBS. The first of those was made starring Matt Dillon, a young Matt Dillon as Ralphie. If you can imagine, wow. Matt Dillon and Peter Billingsley both played Ralphie. Um, and uh, the cast of this movie is wonderful of, of Christmas Story. Darren McGavin plays the old man. Melinda Dillon, who recently died. I mean, Melinda Dillon is a wonderful actress. She was in Close Encounters. She was in Bound for Glory. She was in a ton of other, other things. And she plays the mother. And I think it's an indelible performance. It's beautiful. Peter Billingsley plays Ralphie. He's gone on to a career as a producer. And he's still very involved in the industry. Gene Shepard, his hands are all over this film, right? I mean, he not only narrates it, but the screenplay is... Is, is authored by him and and his wife. But you you were a little bit older than my brother and I when this movie came out. Do you remember Gene Shepard? Like, was he a huge comic voice in America? I know he was a big radio guy, but I don't know much about him beyond what I've read. To a certain cohort, he would be known because a lot of his work was done. Gene Shepard's America, I think, was a show on PBS. So he was sort of in the same... Like, I thought of him in the same way I thought of, like, Garrison Kaler. Like, he was, like, that kind of guy, a humorist, an observer yeah. of American life. Gene Shepard was also a bit of a prankster, and he and a, a group of other writers, I think I told you the story, Dennis, he and a group of other writers at uh, one point uh, uh, created a fake book uh, called I, Libertine, and they issued a bunch of fake press releases for this book in an effort to get this non-existent book onto the New York Times bestseller list because bookstores around America ordered it when they saw the press release. So it became a New York Times bestseller when it did not even exist. So this was this big hoax, basically, that Gene mm -hmm. Shepard and a bunch of other writers did. And it was uh, like 
hilariously funny, I guess, to them. And it was so successful as a hoax that they wound up writing the book a couple of years later, and it became a New York Times bestseller. So it's sort of a a, a fun, uh, you know, gives you a little bit of sense of of, of the anarchic spirit uh, of Gene Shepard and and uh, the other writers at the time. I think they were just having fun. And um, there, there's what I love about a Christmas story. And I love about Gene Shepard's voice, uh, not his, not only his voice, but his authorial voice yep. is that he, he loves, he loves all these people. He loves that town. He loves those, those characters and he, he loves small town America. And it really comes through in the movie in a, in a beautiful way. The reviews of the movie were really good. Uh, you, you talked about the fact that Nick Malone uh, said Royal Tenenbaums is a perfect movie. Ironically enough, one of the big, one of the big quotes that they always uh, cite for a Christmas story is Leonard Malton called it a, a, a perfect movie. Did he? I did not know that. Okay. Yes. Leonard Malton said it is hard. I think it, the, the line is something like it's hard to think of a movie that is more perfect in, in, in every way. So it's, it's, it, it was, it was Christmas. Critically admired. It was nominated for a bunch of, of Genie Awards, which is Canada's Oscars, including and one for Best Director and Best Screenplay. It was the, the WGA nominated it for Best Adapted Screenplay? It was a reason. It was a, a well-regarded work in 2012. Uh, you know, inducted it into the National Film Registry. It's an admired film. In addition to being a beloved you know, annual ritual for a lot of people. As you said earlier that you were older than my brother and I when this movie came out. So we wouldn't have picked up on all that, right? Like the buzz on the street for a film like this. I mean, obviously our parents must have heard about it. That's why we saw it. But like, do you recall it being acclaimed or is it, was it more of a slow burn that happened over time? What I recall about it was that it, the movie premiered and it, it did get good, like surprisingly good reviews because it was, you know, it was like the, the guy who made Porky's and you know, we all like Porky's, but, you know, it, it, and people say, you know, the movie's kind of wonderful. And so it was a movie like in the early 80s, there were certain comedies that were coming out that were like, like sort of premium comedies. They were considered a little, a little more sophisticated, but also like super enjoyable, like even risky business. I mean, these movies that people said, you know, they're also good films. They're also interesting films. So that I'm sure that's one of the reasons I went to see it with a group of people. We weren't, we weren't always getting together on a, you know, Friday night to go see a Christmas film. We were like, I think we heard that this movie was a good film. And, and so we went to see it. To people who've seen the movie, you will instantly recognize the fact that just you'll get a sense of how influential the movie was. I mean, uh, several years after uh, A Christmas Story premiered, uh, ABC premiered the, 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 this TV series, The Wonder Years, which uses the same narrative devices, uh, an adult narrator remembering his childhood through an adult adult sensibility but, you know, observing his family life and his school life and the, the crazy, you know, the, the craziness of, of being a kid. Wonder Years was absolutely credits A Christmas Story as its influence, as its narrative influence. The quotability of this film, right? Like, and I know we'll get into this in a little bit about why, why this movie is loved as much as it is. But, you know, just using the Fragile as an example you know, the box says fragile and the father calls it fragile. And like, and that's something that people say there's memes, there's, there's stuff all over social media about that, but we didn't have that back in 1983. That that's not something that probably would have taken off and, and snowballed. And I just wonder at the time did like people see this movie more than once to actually pick up on fragile and have it be a thing. My guess is no. And it's something that only came from years and years of marathons. And that's how that comes to the surface. I was heading up marketing at TNT throughout the nineties 
at when we decided to do 24 hours of a Christmas story. And it was very interesting in building that campaign because, you know, you had 30 seconds to pick the things that would be, you know, the, the touch points for everybody to, to, to remind them of why they liked the movie. And of course, Frigile was in there and the lamp <laughs> that was a leg was in there. And, and Ralph, you'll shoot your eye out. And the Santa Claus, like it was a, a, a you know, a bounty of great moments and, and touch points. So we had, we could make endless numbers of, of promos uh, just based on stuff that was, um, you know, beloved from the movie. Man, I would have loved to work on that campaign with you. Um, I watched the trailer, the original trailer from 83. They have the Fragile thing in there, Jim. It's, it's, it was one of the, the main devices that they used in the trailer, which is... I bet it's a pretty rough trailer, though. Anytime I let the kids watch it, like, a tra- let's watch the trailer for uh, Roadhouse. Like, they hear you talk about it. Like, well, let's watch it. And I'll be like... It's better than the trailer. Trust me. <laughs> like, don't judge the movie by the trailer. They all look crappy. It's a really good movie, but I'm sure Christmas Story, the trailer can't be good. Was it good? It's it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. yeah. I watched it again, too. If, if, if you've already loved the movie and you've already seen it, you'll get a kick out of how they chose. Because it also speaks a little bit to how movies were marketed back. You know, go watch a trailer for a movie that was released in 1963. And there's like a, yeah. a voice of God... Uh, you know, narrator going the, you know, the scandals of Washington are now about to be revealed in advice and consent. And, you know, like it's, it's hilarious. I mean, how they, they just, they just treated every movie like it was a big news event. Um, so that was pretty funny. Just one thing before we, I'm going to turn it over. I'm going to be asking you guys some questions, but one thing, Dennis, I, uh, you and I share a love of movie posters. And I did one of the things that I always have loved about a Christmas story is it's, uh, its original movie poster is beautiful and it is a direct, um, it, you know, it's obviously inspired by the work of Norman Rockwell and his Saturday evening post cover art. And it's just great. Now, is that hap- was that on your radar at all, Dennis? And- I remember this poster and I, I mean, I was collecting movie posters shortly after when this movie came out. Cause I started working at a theater in, in the mid late eighties, but I feel like it's beautifully designed it's a really beautiful poster. I love the I love the artwork. But do you feel like it sells the movie? Like, is it is it on strategy, Scott Safon, the former chief marketing officer? Is that because it feels a little wacky to me? You would not know that it is a movie with a lot of heart if you had seen that. But I think that that was the right way to position the film because if you had gone to a sentimental kind of, it's about a boy and you know Chris his memories of Christmas and his family. I think you would have not been prepared for just how. The, the 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 wackiness of the movie, which is great. I'd rather bring people in with expecting the wackiness, which the movie does deliver on, and then hit them in the heart, you know, when they're in the theater. And then they'll go and tell people, oh, you really should see this. And you'll see it. And I think that so it works for me. The movie's got this like intelligence to it in the writing and the, and the narration and the screenplay, which I think is superb. And I think that part doesn't come through clearly to me in the marketing of the, the poster or the trailer for that matter. It doesn't, yeah. maybe the trailer does a little bit better of a job because you get some of the dialogue and it picks up on some of the sound bites. But it, what's your vision? What's your vision for the dream poster? Design the poster. What would work? What's one that's not cheaply produced? <laughs> <laughs> I got to think about that. That's not a fair question. I just, uh, I've, I've never loved it. Just like the trailer, the, the movie poster was made in, and premiered in 1983. So it was, so it was entering a marketplace and, and, and expectations that people had of movie posters. Remember movie posters, you really saw the movie posters back then. You don't see movie posters anymore, really. I mean, we see them because we seek them out, but you really don't see them. You walk into a <laughs> multiplex and there's 300 posters around. 
you're not really impacted by the movie posters. Back then, you were likely walking into a theater that has one screen that had three movie posters there, the now playing next attraction and coming soon. And you really looked at movie posters. They mattered and they were adapted for the for the print ads in, in, in magazines and newspapers. So you really knew the key art for every movie. And, and I think for this, they, they were trying to get at the idea that it was all, it was fun. It was fun. It was fun for the whole family. It was great. You know, like it would be, it would be an enjoyable family comedy. You're full of beans and so's your old man. Oh yeah. Yeah. Says who? Says me. Oh yeah. Yeah. I double dare you. The exact exchange and nuance of phrase in this ritual is very important. Huh, are you kidding? Stick my tongue to that stupid pole, that's dumb. That's cause you know it'll stick. You're full of it. Oh yeah? Yeah! Well I double dog dare ya! Now it was serious. A double dog dare. What else was left but a triple dare you? And finally the coup de grave all dares. The sinister triple dog dare. I triple dog dare you. Hmm. Schwartz created a slight breach of etiquette by skipping the triple dare and going right for the throat. All right, all right. Come on, Karen. Well, go on, smartass, and do it. I'm going, I'm going. Flick's spine stiffened, his lips curled in a defiant sneer. There was no going back now. This is nuts. Let's go now talk about your, your personal experiences with the movie. And I really do. I would like to hear from each one of you. You know, I'd like each one of you separately to reflect on that experience of seeing that movie for the first time. And Dennis, do you want to go first? I want to say that mom took you and I to see it. I don't think our sister was there. But she was probably working. I don't think dad was there. It was just the three of us. And I really remember this. We went over to the fine arts theater in Brookfield, which we didn't see a lot of movies of. We always went to the, the Translux, you know, chain. But every once in a while, we had to go see like a Back to the Future over there or a, a Johnny Dangerously maybe probably played over at Fine Arts. But I remember she went to go see it with us on a weeknight. It was like after school, which we never did. But I remember it was like an after school special treat. She was going on about it that she had heard it was this really funny movie. I don't recall you and I um, being super excited to go see it. Right. Probably wasn't our genre, right? It wasn't our thing. Because of the poster. crappy trailer poorly produced as i said earlier so anyway we went to go see it and it was fairly early in the film when mother parker is dressing ralphie's brother uh randy and she's dressing up in this big snowsuit right and like the layers and it's like it's he looks like the the michelin man he's his his arms are all bundled out and and then when randy's outside on on the snow and he's walking to school with ralphie and and he falls down right and he, he couldn't get back up from the snow yeah. Jim, I remember mom started laughing so hard that like, I, I mean, to this day, like, I don't think I had ever seen our mother laugh in, at anything in my life at this point as hard as she did in this moment. And she had tears coming down her face. 
And then, like, I, I honestly thought she needed help. Like, she was laughing so hard. She couldn't get it back. She kept trying to think about, like, getting it back. And she just right? couldn't, she couldn't get it back. And then you and I started laughing because, like, we thought it was funny that she was laughing. And then we were laughing. And, like, that was it. Like, I just... I don't think I've ever seen mom laugh like that on anything else since then. We obviously started watching it, you know, once it came on video, I'm sure she'd rented it for us. And then obviously once it got cable, we started seeing it more and more as a family. But um, is that sort of how you see? I definitely remember the feels of you describing it, but I will tell you that you're wrong on one thing you just said. You have seen mom laugh that hard again. And I'm going to tell you what it was. And you're going to be like, big brother, you're a hundred percent correct. You and I, and I'm going to describe this to Scott really quickly, but you and I drove home to Connecticut one Friday night from here, and we brought with us, what did we bring with us? We brought home the Philip Brody Chronicles, and you and I and dad and mom oh, sat in the right. kitchen at Weed Road, and she started reading those letters that we had written, and the both of them, like I had, I, I, was, I felt so proud that we made them laugh as hard as they did. He was, dad was pounding the table. Mom had to get up. She was run, like, the tears were running down her face. And I remember thinking, man, like we got something here. Like, look at her. But it, those are the two times that I think that I've never seen her laugh the hard. That is a fantastic call. I can't believe I forgot that. Give Scott two minutes. So I don't want to say that Dennis and I, you know, we've had many projects together over the years. This was the video village of that time. Let's just say that. So I think we, you could say we might have borrowed the idea from Jerry Seinfeld, but we like to think we did not. We started writing letters to companies as Philip Brody. He would pen Philip Brody. I would pen Philip Brody. We were living together in an apartment in Gaithersburg, and we would send letters off to Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. And Philip Brody had a style and his style was, hey, my family and I are going on vacation. We would like to tour your facilities. And, you know, he would ask questions about hair netting and are there special boots that my daughter should bring with her? If he, if, if my daughter's marching through the cheese, like, will we be able to touch the cheese? And like, he would always be very sincere, but he always used a lot of Philip Brodyisms. And like, my brother would be writing letters to whoever, and I'd be writing letters. We got, we got Scott, we got served papers once. <laughs> my brother wrote a letter as Kenny Arbuckle, trivia wizard. Now listen to this. He wrote a letter as Philip Brody. He said, listen, I am the traveling secretary for Kenny Arbuckle, trivia wizard. And he wrote it to Nobody Beats the Wiz. And he said, listen, we're going to use the campaign slogan, Nobody Beats the Wizard. I don't think there'll be any confusion. You guys are Nobody Beats the Wiz. You guys deal with technology stuff and audiovisual. He is into trivia. He's Nobody Beats the Wizard. I don't see there being a problem. We got served papers by a lawyer. And I got scared. And Dennis thought it was the funniest thing. And I'm like, dude, we got to shut down Philip Brody. We're going to both go to jail. And he's like, we're not going to jail. I'm like, the guy just showed up on a Saturday and served us papers that says, if you even attempt to use Nobody Beats the Wizard, we're going to sue you and all this kind of stuff. Now it's funny. But we had a whole binder full of the letters. And the responses. The best part about us, Scott, is like we would send out, you know, envelope after envelope because like the, the return yeah. rate wasn't great on responses. Right, Jim? So like for every, you know, for every letter we sent out, you know, we had to send it out maybe five or six to get one back. Right. So like whenever we got one back in the mail, Jim and I would get so excited and we would, you know, we, I'd get home from work and he'd have it on the table and we'd read it. And so the book that we put together, we had the, the letter that we wrote on the left and then the response was on the right. And then, and, and sometimes like we'd get stuff sent, like I, we were always very like, 
Philip Brody was very, Jim said it best. He was very kind hearted, very like soft spoken, very pleasant, but very confrontational. We wrote our letters in a way that we know we were going to get a response, right? Because we wanted to get a response. So sometimes I'd be like, you know, I think we wrote to like Green Giant and, and I said, I wanted a, I wanted an action figure of the Jolly Green Giant. And like, and they sent it to me. When you wrote to, uh, Dip and Dots, you had said that, that you had invented a time machine. And he's like, since Dip and Dots, you guys describe yourself as the ice cream of the future. It only makes sense that you would want to sponsor my first trek. Wherever you were telling him that you were traveling to in the future, that like you wanted shirts and hats for you and your sidekick Ming, whoever your thing was, man, that was some funny stuff. And they'd always send stuff back to like, yeah, we're not interested, but we wish you well. Like sometimes they'd play along. We wish you well on your on your time traveling thing, but we're not interested in it was very fun. Yeah, you're right, Jim. That night when we read those out to mom and dad for the first time and when we had enough letters to like unveil. It was a good night. That they were laughing hard, real hard. Do you still have all of those? Every single one. We let Malone get his hands on some of those. And he thought, of course, those were the funniest things he's ever read. And he did a vo- like he did like a voiceover thing to the letters the one time. He said, We can get this off the ground and we were gonna write a book you and did. we were gonna be famous and they're still they're still there, Scott. I I can get you some copies. There might be some gold in there. I think it's hilarious. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Confederacy of Dunces, because uh Ignatius exactly right. Riley like writes all those angry yeah. books and gets exactly right. various responses, but yours is adorable and funny, and I don't I understand why your parents were laughing there their butts off at that. That is great. I have to say, uh, you know, as an aside, because I just spent a weekend with my 92 year old father uh, who is ailing. And I was like, there is nothing better than the memories I have of when I made my parents laugh. Yeah. When I watched them laughing out loud. Cause I think that that generation was, was a little, was a little like less, you know, a little more guarded about things like that. So when it, when things broke through and they just laughed, you know, uh, thought something was fabulous, that, that was a kind of a wonderful thing. That's a really good point. I mean, I think like now that I think about my parents, our dad was obviously more of the, the joker and Jim and I, you know, we could we made a career out of making our dad laugh. I mean, we we would we would jam him up. We would do all kinds of funny bits just to get a rise out of him. And half the time, he knew that we were doing it, and he played along anyway, and, and it just made us laugh. But our mom was hard, you know. Like she, you don't know our mom like we do, but like it's not that she didn't have a sense of humor. But my mom was more serious, and I think so. In those rare moments where we did see the comedy come out in her and see her, you know, have that kind of emotional response to yeah. something that made her laugh that hard, it was just so rare. I think Christmas story is very much about this though. I mean, we, it is, a, you, 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 the parents are playing their roles as mother and as father and as husband and as wife. And they're, 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 you know, half of the humor is about the roles they, they choose to play. And when, when, when those defenses come down and when things kind of fall apart or whatever, it's, it's wonderful. It's the, it's the beauty of the movie. Um, when like the last third of the film, when chaos has ensued and, you know, all bets are off and whatever, and everyone's humanity just comes out is just lovely. One of my favorite moments of this film is the parents. And it's the, it's the moaning of, after they've opened up all the gifts, you know, I think Randy's passed out. He's got the Zeppelin, you know, he's holding, he's like hugging the Zeppelin. He's like sleeping on the floor. And I think Ralphie's just playing with one of his toys, but the parents are both sitting there in their pajamas and their robes and their slippers. And they're drinking wine, I think. Right. Right. And not, not that mom and dad, Jim drank wine at that hour in, in, in Connecticut, but I do like, 
I do remember us just sort of sitting around and having that post opening come down and and things are kind of calm and relaxing and peaceful. And it's one of my favorite parts of this movie. Me too. I just, I just think it's beautiful. And I think as a, as a, as a dad, um, now that I'm seeing it through those eyes, um, it really, um, and as a son of, 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 you know, a, a person who's, who's, you know, well advanced in his age, I think, wow, that, you know, that the history you have with those people who raise you, um, is, is, um, is hilarious. It's moving. It's exasperating. It's all these things that Gene Shepard, I think was trying to capture, um, in the middle of like, uh, like an American Christmas, uh, which, which, you know, this is Jim talk to me. Like when did you introduce your kids to this film or have you introduced your kids to this film? Well, I don't want to go off on a tangent if we're going to get to uh, my theater career later, but they were they were introduced to this in a different medium when I got to play older Ralph on stage. But I I don't they might have seen Scott. They might have seen it once before I did it. Like it sounds like that's something I would have done. I would have said, hey, before you see it live, why don't we watch it in the comforts of our home? But they would have been. I mean, that was five years ago, so Oliver would have been nine, and she would have been you know six. So she probably doesn't even remember seeing it then. So her probably first memory of it was seeing me, you know, running around with the kids on stage. Let's get into it. Tell us how it came about. I do want to hear about that. I just want to preface this by saying one of the things that has happened with this property, with a a Christmas story, is that in addition to like inspiring, you know, other artists to do things like the Wonder Years, the the core property itself has been adapted. There's stage adaptations of this original movie. There were sequels made to this film, uh, including one made last year called The Christmas Story Christmas that just made its premiere on basic cable but his is on the streaming services and evidently doing quite well um, yeah. with the original cast um there's also a broadway musical that was made and it was mm-hmm. the, the the score is by uh Pasek and paul who did dear evan hansen and the greatest showman and la la land and that musical is very like it ran for a couple of months on broadway like three or four years ago, right before the pandemic, actually. And then now comes back all the time. Regional theaters are doing it. You can see this all the time. And then I was surprised when Dennis said, oh, Jim actually a- appeared in a stage adaptation of A Christmas Story. So tell us about that. Before he goes, I'm going to give my brother some love. I'm going to give him some props. So if you know my brother, he's my brother is a very creative guy. He's, he's very much an artist. He's um, a big personality. And I mean that in all the right ways. And I've seen him do various performances in community theater through the years. But I went to go see him and do A Christmas Story. And, and was it in Gaithers, uh, the Cantlands? Is that where it was? Yeah, the Arts Barn. I was blown away with my brother's performance. Like I was sat back as his little brother and I was watching him. And this is a guy that's made me laugh throughout my whole life. And, I've, you know, he's a very funny guy. And I, he took on this role and Jim just mm. dominated. Like everybody, everybody on stage was great in that performance. I'm I'm not taking anything away from anybody, but my brother, and I'll let you talk about who you played, but like you were just like, you just like hijacked every sequence that you were involved. Like I just, and you knew you were doing it. The audience knew that you were doing it and it was a phenomenal performance. That's very kind of you, but I will go back to the night and I was lucky Scott that other than my dad, everybody in my family got to see it. So my sister and my mom drove down and Dennis came to see it a different night. But I remember the night Dennis came, you know, I came back out, you know, you got to come back. And after the show's done, you come out and everybody tells you how great you were. So Dennis says to me, this is the best compliment he says to me. He's like, 
all of that dialogue, were you reading it off something? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, how could you possibly have remembered all of that dialogue? He's like, were you like, do you have cards? I'm like, no, I don't have any fucking cards. I was re, I memorized it. I remember I've been working on this for two months. Like it was the biggest, it was like literally the, the most memorization I ever had to do. And Scott, when I had, when I had Oliver, I kind of went on hiatus from, from theater because I wanted to be a dad. So I was like, I know rehearsals three times a week. I don't want to do that. So I literally had been out of the acting gig for a long time. And then Ken Kemp, shout out to Ken Kemp. He is one of our Video Village guys. And he came to me and he said, I'm going to direct, you know, the live stage version of A Christmas Story. And I think you should come audition. And I was like, man, I don't know if I've got that muscle anymore or whatever. And I went and auditioned for Ken. I thought I was going to be the dad because the dad seemed like it was a fun role. And in the live version, um, adult Ralph, I was called Ralph, and then the kid on stage was Ralphie. I kind of walked the stage as a ghost. So as I'm narrating, I've got a lot of the same speeches that they do in the movie, but um, the, the characters on stage can't see me. So like when I'm talking about Scott Farkas and whatever, I move through the kids, the audience sees me, I'm still narrating, but you know, I'm just like that breaking the fourth wall and all that stuff. So it was an incredible amount of narration. He talks a lot more in the show I did than in the movie, I think. So it was, it was a bit, it was a big lift for me. And I was, I was so happy to do it. And when I was done doing it, I really thought my phone was going to start ringing from all the directors in the area, but then nobody called. Crazy. After the show was over, um, my kids, I this was exactly what I didn't want to have happen. They're like, don't do any more. You were gone too much. Like, you were gone too much. You know, it was three nights a week. And then when the show opened, it was three weekends, um, four shows a weekend. And it was just, it was a lot. And I was exhausted. I understand why your kids would say that. But remember, there's a lot of, you have a lot of road ahead. And they will, they will be older. And they will be going off to school and stuff like that. And you're going to do more of that. Because that that's you should be doing that. There is uh there's one show. It wasn't I don't think Dennis it was the show. Did you guys did you come to the same show that mom was at? I want to say that I was at a different show. Because I'm, I'm sure look, I was just looking at that photo today. But at the end of the at the end of the show, I came out and like brought everybody that was I think you were at the same show as mom, but I brought that okay. I brought everybody up on stage, which you're not really supposed to do. And I'm like, what are they gonna do? Fire me? Who else is gonna memorize these lines? And there's <laughs> there's a photo, and I'll send it to you, but there was a photo of my mom sitting on the couch. And Oliver and Alice are at her knees and everybody that came, Buck and Sarah were there and my sister was there. And it was such a, it was a fun night. And like, I, I read the, I read the write up that I put on Facebook and it was literally, you know, I, I don't say it very often, but it was a top 10 night. Like that one show where like there was only 99 seats in the theater. And I think half of them were teen Jim. And it was, it was one of the, it was literally truly one of the best nights of my life. I had such a good time. And, uh, but it was, it was a lot of work. It showed, but man, are you, I mean, was that like the creative high point of your, of your life? Would you say, you know what it was, if Ken was on this podcast right now and they, we, we texted today and he said, I think I lost two years of my life because he was corralling kids. I mean, I was trying to memorize lines, but he's got a bunch of kids that he is trying to direct and having them hit their marks and having them learn their lines. And I remember like, we got to a point where I was like, man, I don't know if we have, a show. And I've said that on every performance I've ever been on. And then all of a sudden something happens. It's like overnight. And then you're like, wow, it's starting to click. And then it's like, then opening night starts approaching. Everybody gets a little bit more serious, but it was, uh, it was pretty cool. It was definitely the, the probably, well, that and 12 anger men, probably the best shows 
that I've been in. And that's an interesting range of productions, but that's great. I, I love that. But I really, I mean, just to hear you talk about it and and uh, the experience, you have to, you do, you you will have a chance to go back to that. And I, it sounds like it's probably something you should do. Uh, and I hope soon. I, I talked to Mary Lou the other day. I was like, man, you know what? I think maybe 2024, something small. Like this was, for my return to the stage, this probably wasn't a good vehicle because it was like going from zero to 120. Yeah. And I think maybe more as like, oh, he's the guy. He's the friend of the main guy. <laughs> and I have like, you know, 50 lines to memorize and like let him run the whole show. And I'm just the, the side comic guy. That's what I need. Little bite size. There's a Broadway musical version of Tootsie. I'll bring it back to Tootsie. Uh-oh. And that friend friend character is who is Bill Murray in the movie, but in the in the Broadway musical, it's actually it, it, it's a, I think an even better role. Might be very good for you. All right. I love that story, and I love the fact that you got a chance to do it. And now I want to like talk about the actual like why the film has resonated for so long, why people found it relatable. And, and, and let's just, we, we've, we've, we've sort of referenced that a little bit through our personal lenses and everything, but I would like to hear what your kind of professional, maybe your professional uh, perspective is on this. Like Dennis, why, why do you think, you know, why do you think this movie is, has, has endured the way it has? I think it's because we were all kids. You know, and, and, and I think like everybody, we all grow up in different towns and different states around the country, and we all have our own relationship with our families and, and, and with the holidays, right? But I think, you know, through the kids' lens of, of experiencing Christmas and, and having that excitement, I mean, I just, I, th- I think about myself a lot when I watch this movie and just how I felt. Obviously, Ralphie wanted his Red Rider BB gun, and that was, that was his holy grail of, of toys that he wanted to get from Santa Claus, right? But for me, I mean, and Jim, you probably have a, a slightly different experience because you're a bit older than me. But like that, that feeling, that 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 energy that as a kid that you have the weeks leading up to Christmas and sending off your letter to Santa, which you would do in November or whatever. You wanted to get the letter out early to the to the North Pole, but like just like as you get closer to the big day and you just know that it's coming. Like I remember when I was a kid, I. I would go to bed early on Christmas Eve because I just wanted to get there. I just wanted to get yeah. to Christmas morning. And I felt like if I went to bed early, it would go by faster, yeah. right? Like I wouldn't have to, the waiting was exhausting. And I just wanted to get there and have that feeling. And I remember like, there was always like this feeling of like, when you're watching TV, you'd see those old school Toys R Us commercials. Remember? Oh, yeah. It's a Toys R Us time <laughs> of year. You know what I'm talking about with Jeffrey. And it was like all like animated. It was great, right? And I just remember that. And man, I just wanted to like, bottle that feeling up. And I think that's what this movie does for me. It's just this, and it goes beyond Christmas, obviously, because it's about life in a small town and it's being, it's going to school and and dealing with your friends and having that, that relationship that you have with your friends and that code that you have with your friends that only you guys know. And, and it's the, the radio programs, the things that you did, your hobbies, like this movie just does a beautiful job of capturing childhood. Jim, what are your thoughts? Everything you said, I agree with. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I and I knew if any question was going to be asked, it was going to be why do I like you know Christmas stories. So I'm not going to give you the rehearsed answer, but I'm going to. It's, it's twofold. Do you guys follow the Instagram, the dude with sign, the guy that holds the sign up? Slap. Do you know what I'm talking about? I used to. Yeah. yeah, it's like a cardboard sign, and whatever he holds up, you laugh. It's funny because you've lived whatever he's holding up, right? It's like, hey, enough saying you're on mutes, and you think it's funny because you're on meet, you know, you're on meetings all the time. I think a Christmas story is is. It resonates with me because I've lived the Christmas story. Like we would never refer to Roger Kamlick Scott as the old man, but we had an old man. Like my relationship with him 
Like in the movie, when the old man is in a good mood, he's in a really good mood and you see the whole family kind of relaxes and they yuck it up with him. But when the old man was in a bad mood, slap him, right? I mean, we knew when, we knew when to stay away from Raji. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, Scott, I could tell you, and I'll give you some examples of when, when, when he's helping the old man change the tire. I mean, I did that with my dad. Dennis did that with my dad. I mean, there's times like I remember holding, we had a, we had a two story house in Long Island and he put the Christmas lights up and we, he had a ladder and I remember he would extend that ladder, jung, 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 jung. And he'd go up there and he'd, Scott, he'd look at me and he's like, listen, I'm going up this ladder. You need to, Jimmy, look at me. You need to hold this ladder. And he's like, cause if you, you, I will fall on my ass if you don't hold this ladder straight. And I'm like, you know, I'm putting my, my nine year old weight against this ladder and he's up there swearing and he's nailing shit in. And I'm, he's like, you got the ladder. I'm like, I got it. My mama come out. What are you doing? Mama I'm holding this ladder because if this ladder goes, that's it. We don't have a father. <laughs> like we, you know, it was the same thing. Like we moved to Connecticut. He bought a, he bought a tractor. So in the summer, that tractor cut the grass. And in the winter, he would take the, the 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 mowing attachment off, and he'd put a plow on the front to plow this big long freaking New England driveway that he bought. And Dennis or I, we would stand there and literally, literally, Scott, he'd give you the bolts. He's like, "Here's this bolt. Don't drop them. Hold this bolt. Hold this bolt." And when I watched the movie with Ralphie kneeling behind the tire, I'm like, "That's why it's funny for me." I mean, I, I love toys. I love the build up to Christmas, sure, but like. Watching him, I'm like, we ha- we had that guy in our house. That guy lived down the hall from Dennis and I, 100%. We lived that life with snow, right? Because we grew up in Long Island. We had our fair share of snow in, you know, outside New York City. But when we moved to Connecticut, we really got a, a decent amount of snow. Yeah. But just, the, the, as I mentioned earlier, dressing up in the garb and the bulky you know, outfit. Obviously, as we got older, we weren't wearing what, what Randy wore. But yeah. there was a time in my life when I wore exactly what Randy had. I mean, it was a suit. It was a snowsuit. And you had the mittens and the hat and the scarf and you could barely walk and you could barely like walk down the sidewalks. So, I mean, that part of it rings really true to me. Just that whole like notion of like life in the snow. But yeah, you're right, Jim. Yeah. Dad, that was the old man was that's spot on. Perfect. I grew up 15 years before you guys did, but I also grew up on Long Island. I sort of had that dad too. My father would never have cursed. I mean, he did no swear. There was no swearing in my household. Um, I literally, so that, that would have happened, but, but there were definitely like the dynamics depicted in the movie were completely recognizable to me. And I had two younger brothers and it was the same, the same thing. It, and I, th- I thought, like, wow, this movie, even though we didn't celebrate Christmas, we're Jewish, we didn't like anything. And this movie still felt like it was a documentary around about my family <laughs> uh, because it was just just there was so much recognizable stuff in there. And um, the behaviors, the way the parents acted with each other, the way they acted with us. Um, yeah, I just and and I think the thing that I appreciate maybe I appreciate it now more than when I saw it when I was a 23 year old was um, there's a tenderness in this movie that I think people forget or people like kind of overlook it because yeah. it's not the featured uh, the, the, the feature of the movie, but it's, it's a very tender film and very, I have, I have a weakness for movies that are very affectionate. Me too. The movie itself <laughs> is affectionate about its characters and you get the sense that everybody who worked on this movie loves these people. And that's what I felt about this. And as much as they're making fun of, you know, the old man and his love of this 
you know, tacky lamp and, you know, like it's the movie loves him. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why the film just endures is that, that the movie is in many ways, I mean, it's a memory play, but it is about love um, in a lot of ways. You said some really nice things about Melinda Dillon earlier and, and how great she is yeah. in this film. But to me, she's like the emotional backbone of this movie. And it reminds me of my own mother and how she was the emotional backbone of our family, without a doubt. There's so many little moments in this movie, the way she's trying to feed Randy the, the potatoes and, and, and they're doing the whole pig noise thing. And then when Randy feels like Ralphie's going to get in trouble because he got in trouble at school and he beat up the, the bully and he's going to kill Ralphie. <laughs> he's sitting under the sink, right? Yeah. Like something like a little kid would do. Like there were so many little moments like that with the mother that she was just like, Oh, I, I think Melinda Dillon w- wins this film. I mean, everybody in this movie is great. And I think that the, the script and, and Gene Shepard's narration is phenomenal. But I think Melinda Dillon really carries this movie. The more I've watched it, too, what you said earlier, Scott, as you get older and you watch a film through you know a different lens as an older person versus what you were when you were 12. And part of the reason I like doing this podcast is it forces me to go back and watch films again through an older set of eyes. I, she she just carries this film. She was the she was the protector of that family of those boys. And like when she is when she's making up the lie about Ralphie's glasses and why the glasses got broke. Because she's like, you know, that whole wait till your father gets home. I mean, that expression has stood the test of time because every kid at some point in time, the mom's the stay at home mom, just like our mom was. And dad's going to come home. There's many times where I'm like, God, when he comes home and he sees that I did this, that's it. Like my dad was not, he didn't hit us. He didn't ever, ever, ever hit us. He did swear, Scott, but he never hit us. So I don't know what I was afraid of, but I was afraid of the wrath at times. And my mom was our protector. And I was like, God, I know I don't have to do it alone. As bad as it's going to get with Raji when he comes home. And he usually wasn't as bad as I ever thought it was going to be. But she would be like, I'll take the bullet. So you just will deal with it. And I think that's when we watched that movie. I think that resonated a lot, too. There's a thing that I thought of when I was watching the movie. um, Because I think about this a lot of times when I watch movies that were made in the 60s or 70s or 80s. And I wonder, um, wow, could they do this today? And it's weird to have that thought uh, about a Christmas story, but so many of the jokes are about the you know the Red Rider BB gun, and it's like the the notion of giving a kid a gun is yep. you know <laughs> I don't know if anyone would make something about that and 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 have it just be just hilarious and adorable. I mean, but um, and you know the fact that. Um, they get they they get to Higby's and they leave the kids alone. They leave the kids. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like when you see Love Actually and they're like running through the airport <laughs> like, without heed to like TSA or anything like that. You're like, how could they run through an airport? Like, so I just I at the whole time I was watching uh, rewatching uh, a Christmas story. I was like. Oh my God, there's so much to them. And even Ralphie's own reminiscences, I think my old man was going to kill me. I'm like, like there's, it's just, you know, I don't know if you could, I don't know right now in the, in the current movie, you know, movie production climate, you could even do this script. No, and you certainly couldn't end the movie the way this movie ends, which I think that the oh, ending of this film is phenomenal yeah, where they, they go to this. they go to the Chinese restaurant and they're the only ones there and these guys are trying to sing, you know, a Christmas song to them and they're they're butchering it because of their accent. That would never be allowed today. <laughs> never. No, and I have to say like I uh, that I think that sequence is the sequence that made me laugh the most when I rewatched it. I was, that was the, you know, 
you were making some notes on, on our discussion prior to this, you had raised this question. Is there any sequence in, in movies that has made you laugh so much you cried? Um, and yeah, that, that on this film in the rewatching the sequence at the end of the film, this is a spoiler maybe, but the the final sequence of the movie takes place in a, in a, um, a Chinese restaurant um, that that's they're the only cost. The, the, the family is the only customers there. And it is absolutely priceless and absolutely one of the funniest sequences I've seen in a film. And um, it's, it all trades on, you know, an accent joke. <laughs> so Scott, I'll tell you when I got, when I finished doing the show, I know my mom sent me um, a leg lamp ornament for the tree. My sister, <laughs> my sister sent me one of those light up Christmas village houses. It was Ralphie's house. And it was, you know, it, I remember the day I opened it and I think I got emotional. I'm getting emotional talking about it, but it was like, I had put so much of my heart and soul into that show. And it's like, when you're done with the show and you like, you wrap and you take the state, you take the set dressings down and it is like, it is fucking over. And like you go through this depression and my sister had known, I guess, me talking about it before. So that man, when that show wrapped, there was the box and I opened it and it was Ralphie's house. And, you know, you plug in, it lights up and you got the little leg lamp. It's this big in the front window, whatever. And then I don't know if it was the following year, she sent me Chop Suey Palace. So like right now up on my mantle in the family room, I've got, I think there's the school Ralphie's school, this Chop Suey Palace, and there's Ralphie's house all lit up in a little thing. So, like, you want to talk about my connection? Like, every Christmas, you know, my little ritual of taking the styrofoam off and hoping the light bulb inside still lights because I don't know where to get a, real, a replacement light bulb and setting the houses out. It's nice. Our Christmas morning, and I remember this when we were living in Connecticut, that we were always waiting for mom and dad to get up, right? Like we couldn't go downstairs and even like look at the gifts until the parents were ready to roll. Like, I mean, I guess we could, but like we couldn't touch no. anything. So we had this bit, right, Jim? Like one of us, it was either you or me usually, or maybe our sister, Trish, and, and one of us would start, start coughing, right? Like, <laughs> like really trying to like get their attention, like start coughing like really loud, right? So that hopefully down the hall, their bedroom door was open and they, they would hear us making And they noise would cough and they in return to acknowledge that they were awake. And it's like, let's get this right? going. Mom would be the first one. She'd go downstairs. Oh, and, nobody you know, comes down. I got to go get it set up. I want to go put the music on. Yeah, she'd put on the yes. Ray Conniff on the A track, right? She'd Ray Conniff Christmas, and then we, and then it was ready. Like, and then we would go. But those rituals, I just I just remember them so. And I, and I think this movie, you know, they don't have that in this film, but like they have their little pieces, right? Like, like the old man going into the kitchen and grabbing a piece yeah. of turkey, right? Like, that reminds me of our kitchen because we had the turkey and it was sitting there and it takes all day to make. And like just those little those little nuances, this movie's got a million yeah. of them and that's just at the house, right? And then you mentioned Higby's earlier and just that, it reminded me of when we were like the weeks leading up to Christmas, my mom and dad would always drag me to the, to the mall because like my brother was off at college and my sister was off working already and I was the one, right? And I would, we have to go to these department stores, the music and the costumes and all the decorations at Higby's wasn't exactly that where I grew up, but like it reminded me of that, like just that whole notion. I, and as a kid, I hated going to the department store because I found it really slow and really boring and I just wanted to, to get home. Absolutely. Well, in the movie, I, I, I did think it was hilarious that the visit to Santa at Higby's was a terrifying experience, that every kid shrieking for their life as they were on the slide going down. It's just, it all happens kind of off camera, but you just hear the shrieks. And I was like, what a great, like, just what a great, uh, you know, element 
in the film. I think it's interesting that you make this point about, you know, the rituals we have around holidays and families have around holidays. And that's kind of a wonderful thing. I think that, that, that a lot of families have, and, and, and many families probably aspire to it. it it's kind of, um, heartwarming to think that a lot of those families, part of their ritual is they watch Christmas story and they probably watch the Christmas story and they watch elf and they maybe watch it's a wonderful life. If they're slightly older, um, or they watch, uh, you know, a miracle on 34th street. I mean, movies and, and, and Christmas, um, really, and I'm not talking in the more recent movies and rom-com Christmas, you know, the, the, the onslaught of Christmas movies, you know, they're, that are, that give, lots of joy to millions of people on Hallmark and Lifetime and Netflix and everybody else is making, but these classic Hollywood uh, Christmas movies, um, they really do become part of the American scene, I guess. And so for Christmas, this time of year, Jim, in your house, you have, how old are your kids? Uh, 14. Alice is going to be 11 on new year's day. So 14 and and 10 right now, what's, uh, is there a movie that they'll want to make sure that they, they see as part of the Christmas experience? I would say there is not a, you know, the, the we have to watch it during the Christmas season. You know what we do, Scott? We put on Netflix and we go to like the holiday movie thing and we'll uh-huh. like we'll punch up some romantic comedy that like literally just dropped in 2023 that's got Reese Witherspoon or somebody else in it and we'll like nobody has seen it. And then we'll watch it. And like an hour in, we'll be like, well, this is stupid. And I'll be like, yeah, but it's really good though, right? Oh yeah, it's fantastic. I love it. I can't wait to, see, I can't wait to see what happens. So we're, we're a big fan of watching that. And I would say we would watch, we'll watch the Home Alone movies. I would say we'd watch Home Alone movie. That's probably the, the best crowd pleaser of the family, I would think. Dennis, do you have a, do, do you and your, yours have a holiday ritual then? I would say I usually don't miss watching a Christmas story at some point during the holidays. Like, and I know it obviously gets played a lot over Christmas itself. I definitely will watch that. I mean, I, I know it's on. So, or, and I want to ask you about that in a second. So we'll get back to that. But like, I think it's definitely a Christmas story for me. For me, it's more like, cause I just love it so much. I just love the, the humor um, the, the writing, it's the, all the sound bites, all the, just the dialogue. It's just superb. And I just want to watch that. I want to experience that every year. So that is a movie I just love. And then I would say Elf, you mentioned Elf earlier. And it's funny, like, I don't even think I saw Elf in the theater when it came out. I was living in New York. Um, I liked Will Ferrell. I wouldn't say that I loved Will Ferrell, but I definitely liked him. But that was a movie for me that I think I discovered on cable. And I just, I heard so much about it. And I was like, you know, and I don't, I wouldn't say that Elf is as good as a Christmas story. I'm not saying that at all, but I could see why people um, revere it the way they do. And those are the those are the two for me. Home Alone, maybe like number three. It, Home Alone's interesting. I hadn't thought about Home Alone. The uh, in my family, Elf is a movie that I took my kids to went because they were they yeah. were of appropriate age, and we all like left our asses off during it. I think that movie is hilariously funny. And, 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 uh, we all watch it. We will, we'll, we'll always watch it again, but the movie that my wife and my grown daughters will always watch around Christmas. Sometimes I join them. A lot of times I don't though, is the holiday Kate Winslet and switching the switching yeah, boyfriend's yeah. vehicle. And, uh, and they love that film. They just they just think that's it. And la- and they like Last Holiday too, which is the Queen Latifah film. And they're both you know holiday related movies. And they just think that those movies are holiday essentials. Immediately, my feet began to sweat as those two fluffy little bunnies with the blue button eyes stared sappily up at me. 
come down here so I can see you better. I just hoped that Flick would never spot him, as the word of this humiliation could easily make life at Warren G. Harding School a veritable hell. Oh, isn't that cute? That is the most precious thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he looks like a deranged Easter bunny. He does too. He looks like a pink nightmare. Are you happy wearing that? Do you want to take it off? Well, can't tell the kid to take it off. All right, you'll only wear it when Aunt Clara visits. Go on and take it off. Take it off. You referenced the um, when you were working at TNT and TBS back in the day. It, you were there when I guess they decided to make uh, the, to, to do the marathon to schedule the marathon. Do you remember that? Like, talk, take us through like how that came about. Well, it came about very interesting. The the, the, the people who were running scheduling, programming, and scheduling for TNT were like just really they they were really into the the strategy about scheduling and what movie flew you know flowed well into another movie and everything and they would always say to me and i i just they were veterans of 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 television scheduling so i was always curious about you know what they learned from doing it for you know years and years and years and they would always say scott the best lead-in for a movie is the same movie and i was like really they said yep Yep. It, the best lead in for a TV show, honestly, is the same show. And I was like, oh, another episode of the same show. They go, no, it's the same episode of the same show. And I was like, what are you talking about? So Because Nielsen ratings would always tell you, oh, you'd get a, an audience for that hour. Well, most of those people don't show up at the top of the hour. They show up somewhere through the hour. And if you could exactly. entice them right away with, we're going to just show this thing again. This was, of course, in the 90s. It was before everything was on demand. It was before everything could be paused or moved or shifted or whatever. So you were at the mercy of linear television. And so when it came to, uh, we were trying to figure out some like stunt kind of stuff to do around Christmas. And we had the rights to show a Christmas story and we always showed it on Christmas Eve and, and on Christmas day. And it always did well. And they were like, let's just show it one after the other, after the other, after the other. And I was like, really? Like, like what people they'll have seen it. They're going to watch it a second or a third or a fourth time. They go, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. It's going to work. It trust me, it's <laughs> going to work. And the numbers even at three o'clock in the morning will be fantastic. And the numbers at eight o'clock in the morning will be fantastic. And, but it's, it's just always going to work. It might not work any other day of the year, but it'll work. And it's like, all right, well, we have nothing to lose that day. Typically, I think back then it wasn't even counted against your, your, your Nielsen numbers for the year. So it was like a free day and advertisers liked the idea and everything. So they're like, great, let's just do it. And it was a huge success. I mean, we, we had a high audience, like for the entire 24 hours of a Christmas story. And of course, like right away, they're like, well, that was interesting. I was like, wait, I mean, cause I was ahead of marketing. I was like, we are announcing tomorrow that we are doing it again next year. <laughs> like right now, let's start selling the, the sponsorships. Let's start like, it was so successful. We're going to say we're going to just do this every year. And um, yeah, so that's sort of how it started. Now, the, obviously the television landscape has completely shifted. You can easily watch this 24 hours of a Christmas story on your own if you want. <laughs> um, or you could just, uh, you know, uh, you know, indulge yourself on any streaming service and watch. I, when I was recat catching up with the movie again, before this conversation, I just went on max and 
it was there. Um, here's an interesting story. My wife had not seen this film, and but she knew she knew the famous touch points of the movie and everything. And then so she was on a flight going up to New York to visit her mom like two weeks ago. So she's like, oh, good. I've downloaded the movie from Max and she watched it. And she's watching the movie and she's like, God, the movie feels awfully contemporary. She had downloaded the sequel, A Christmas Great Christmas, <laughs> which evidently references almost all the same big moments yeah. from A Christmas Story. So she's like, it's interesting. It feels more contemporary. Though I thought the movie was like, made like 40 years ago, but it looks like it was made yesterday. Like, it was made yesterday. Like, you watched the wrong movie. That's so- funny. So now she's going to she's going to watch the uh, original. And in 2002, an estimated 38 million people tuned into the marathon at one point or another. So that's in 2002, 2005. TBS reportedly reported 45 million viewers. I mean, these are massive, massive numbers. And I guess what I would ask you guys is like not any movie. You can't just do that with any movie. Right. So like, I love Die Hard. It's a great movie. But is that a movie that I would want to come across as I'm channel surfing and have it on? repeat for 24 straight hours no the answer is no and i think why a christmas story is that movie is that there's just something about that film that you can jump in at any point in time because you've seen it so many times right like it's just like it doesn't like i don't need to watch a christmas story from the beginning to the end i will and i have and that's fine but like there's a there's a joy in terms of me coming in at any point in time and you know what's you know what's coming next. You know what the next scene is. It's so rewatchable that it doesn't matter where you jump in. I agree with that slap and the fact that like I couldn't tell you if the tire changing scene happens in the beginning of the movie or at the end or when they go to get the tree. You know, oh, we went a bit yep. where the big trees. Where are the big trees? Like, I mean, I'm assuming it's in the beginning, but I think when you put it on, it doesn't have like the flow. It hasn't doesn't have a a start, medium. You know, it's got to click click them off. I think it's just funny bits. Right. It's the funny bits. Yeah. He's at the school and he's handing in his report on what he wants for Christmas. And I'm like, I, that's not in the first 10 minutes of the movie, but it could be at the end of the movie. And it doesn't matter. It's just great stuff. Movies very episodic, too. So it's like, yes. like he's having that sequence, you know, those 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 series of dream sequences. Yeah. There's like at any point once you've seen the movie once you could pop, pop into it at any given point in its its life. But also it's a it's a memory because it's a, a, a because it's episodic because you have a strong emotional connection to it and because it doesn't really rely on you. I mean, it's it's certainly not tense or suspenseful. So you really you know it's not like calibrated that way. So yeah, something like a Die Hard or any any of these other movies that really have a, an intricate plot that leads to something. Um, you know, it's not like that. This is this is like a, a wonderful experience that you can you know pop into and out of whenever you want. Um, I just wonder how many people are really like wandering around linear television. Um, having that, you know, accidental experience anymore. I don't know if that that's quite the thing that it used to be. I guess I'm one of those people. I admit that I, I'm still a wanderer. And, and I think that says a lot more about me in terms of how I consume content. I'd like to, I like to come across a movie. And, Ooh, I haven't seen this in a while and I'll just sort of put it down. But I, obviously the numbers are proving out that not as many people are doing that now. So I guess, but it's interesting, Scott, that, you know, Warner media that, that owns TBS and TNT, they're still doing it. They haven't stopped. I mean, I'll, I think I'll be outraged if I ever find out one day that they've stopped doing the Christmas story marathon. I hope it goes on. Oh, forever. no, no, no. There's no incentive for them to, to, to stop doing it. Number one, uh, there will always be advertisers interested in, in sponsoring. It's a very, 
you know, the, and it's a great promotional bet for them to support other things that they're trying to get you to do and watch, uh, even on their streaming platforms. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I think that's, that's pretty safe. I think it's been fun for me as we, in prepping for this movie and, re- and talking about it with, you know, friends and family members. If, if I come across somebody who hasn't seen the movie before, it's been fun to talk to them about the movie and then have them come back to me and say, Oh my God, that movie, that movie, I, I mentioned it to somebody else and they told me it's one of their favorite movies. I got to watch it. Or they watched it and said, I, I was shocked at how funny it was. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. The, the, the one wacky story that I have related to it is somebody telling me, I think I told you this already, Dennis, that somebody said, wow, uh, they really ripped off the wonder years. And I was like, no, it's not the way around. <laughs> like this movie came first at the wonder years was based on, uh, on that. This is one of those films where you can actually listen to this movie and almost find it just as satisfying and entertaining as, as watching it. Obviously the visuals are great and you got the, the little kid, but his tongue on the pole, the flagpole. And that's one of the iconic sequences from this movie and the, and the bunny suit. There's, there's many of them, but I think, Gene Shepard's narration is just tremendous. Like the way he just weaves in and out of this film and it doesn't like it only starts in the beginning and then it goes away and maybe comes back at the end. The narration's in this film the entire time. And not a lot of movies do that. And I think if you just like stop and you could be doing something else while this movie's on and still find it really hilarious just based on his words and how he delivers those words. I mean, I think to me, that's probably what's the best thing about this movie is, is the narration. Incredible. Yeah, he is. It's not really just a perfunctory thing. I mean, he's establishing a relationship with the audience. He's 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 sharing it with you. And that is um, and it's and it, with that very unique, you know, point of view on everything on, on, on what he's what he's sharing. And that mix of like explaining with an adult through an adult's eyes what a kid was feeling. He's talking about his old man and how he swears. And he's like, Jim, and I think you said this in your in your show. Now, I had heard that word at least 10 times a day from my old right. man. He worked in profanity the way other artists might work in oils or clay. It was his true medium, a master. Who writes like yeah. that? That is like nobody writes yeah. like that. It's a million of those in this movie. I'm glad this movie endures, and I'm glad um, it, it means something. I'm mostly glad that you guys had that have that memory um, of how your mom appreciated the film too, because I think that's the essence of what this movie is about. I think Gene Shepard was remembering his mother in the same way. Did you know that Jack Nicholson was once seriously interested and he was attached to this movie? Um, the studio didn't want to pay him because, because he demanded quite a quote at the time and it would have doubled the budget. So Bob Clark said, you know, we can't do it. And he's actually on the record saying that he's glad it didn't work out that Darren McGavin was born to play um, the old man. I don't disagree, but how do you guys feel about Nicholson as the old man? I don't. You're shaking your head. I don't, don't? feel it. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to think of like Nicholson circa 1983. I'm trying to remember what kind of work he was doing. I mean, I'm sure he would have been okay. I mean, it's so hard to imagine anyone other than Darren McGavin um, playing that part. You guys talked earlier about a perfect movie. And I, I feel like when you start trying to recast a perfect movie, why would you? 
right? I mean, if you if a, if a movie was ninety percent there and one of the actors was so terrible that that was the reason it wasn't a perfect movie, all right, I could see recast on that actor. But why mess with perfection? Nicholson can't play the father. He's not down there hitting the the freaking the, the 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 oil burner down in the basement with a hammer, yelling out that stuff. That's not Nicholson. Like just too. It would admit. I think it's just too campy for lack of a better word, for Nicholson to play the father. I don't know. One of the things that bothers me when I do research for these episodes is that you come across a nugget or two of, of something that you would wish you hadn't read. <laughs> when I did research for Coming to America this past year, and this was something I had already known, but I knew that Eddie Murphy and, and director John Landis had a huge fight on set while they made Coming to America. They hated each other. And like it was a, it was a problematic film set. Same could be applied going back to Deliverance, which we talked about at the start. <laughs> Um, John Borman, the director, and James Dickey, the author, did not get along. Uh, Borman booted Dickey off the set of Deliverance more than once. Um, I think there was actual an actual uh, fist fight at one point. And then I read on this movie, Bob Clark, the director, Gene Shepard did not get along so much. So I guess Shepard was trying to just take control, tell the actors what to do, and that's what a director's job is. And he banned him from the set. I think the movie making process, as as you know, our my limited exposure to it, it's just super messy, and uh, there's a lot of creative voices at the table. I in the in the eighties when I lived in New York City, and I was a member of the Ninety Second Street Y, and they used to have a a, a week a, every week they did something called uh, books on uh, books into film, and they would have the author of a movie come and talk about. Um, and they, we'd see the movie that was made from their move from their book, and then they would be interviewed about their their book. A book, and every time they would say, "My book didn't turn into a film. The film is completely different." <laughs> and they were there to have the conversation, but mostly to say why their the movie did not represent their book. Um, and and I'm like, I think I, I think a lot of authors. Christmas Story is a different, probably a little bit of a different story because Gene Shepard's voice is so permeating you know, the, the, you know, permeating the film, but there can only really probably be one director and that is got to be the author of the film. I guess that's the, that's the idea. My love of Christmas story is, is deeply and forever impacted by my stage thing. So like when I, when, when you asked me to do this podcast, it's hard for me to, to separate the amount of time I spent at the dining room table trying to memorize this beast but I got, and I and I never tried to do a Gene Shepard impersonation on stage. It just wasn't going to work. And I don't think Ken said, just be yourself, whatever. But I got to Scott, like when the when the theater went dark in the beginning, um, I got to enter the 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 auditorium from the back and in the dark. And I'd come down, and I had a spot. And then you know the light would come on, and I got to open the show. And then on the opposite end of the show, I got to close the show. I mean, the, every, all the things have happened. Ralphie got the gun. Everything is great. And the, the mom and dad do their little thing on the couch. And I kind of stand there with a single light on me. And if you guys will permit me, I'm going to read right now. Um, I, I couldn't find my script. So I reached out to Ken Kemp and I said, hey, I know this. Obviously, you've got it at your fingertips. I sent him a text last night. I said, can you send me the thing? And like 20 seconds, he's like, I just emailed it to you. And it's literally what he sent me was, you know, how, how, how scripts come in like the little book. So you can see that Ken probably put it on the Xerox machine. Then he flipped the page. So each page is like the double, it's like the double sided thing for the script. So anyway, I got to close the show every night doing this. And I got to tell you what, and, and if Cassandra who played my mom on the show, um, she she will attest to this, but like when I said this, 
I got emotional and I'll probably get emotional reading it because it was like the last time I got to do it, it was a Sunday matinee and I did it and I went through the, the theater doors to the outside and nobody could see me except my mom and dad on stage. And they said I did one of those like Peter Benton things where I'm like, like, yes, like I like I just like killed it. And then like I didn't think anybody saw it, but I guess the door was slowly closing. So after the show, they're like, what was this? And I'm like, I don't know. I just had like this reaction where it was just like a thing. But anyway, I got to do this at the end of the thing. Ralph, uh, safe and snug in my warm bed, I could hear the falling snow brushing softly against the window. Next to me lay my oiled blue steel beauty, my legendary official Red Rider 200-shot carbine action range model air rifle with a compass and this thing which tells time built right into the stock. The greatest Christmas gift I had ever received or ever would receive. Gradually, I drifted off and slept the sleep of the just and the fulfilled, dreaming of paying, pranging ducks on the wing and getting off spectacular hip shots. I wonder whether Red Rider is still dispensing retribution and frontier justice as of old. You know, considering the number of kids I see with broken glasses, I suspect he is. Merry Christmas. Boom. Right? Boom. That stuff still gets me. That's great. Movies are just not written like that. No, they're just, they just, they aren't. And I think that, I think that, that there's a lot of reasons for that. I think there's not a lot of patience for um, the idea that, oh, there's a narrator, not only like taking through the action, but actually sharing some meaningful stuff to you with you and, yeah. and everything. And really being, you know, not just connective tissue, seriously delivering, you know, the stuff and un, a person you wouldn't even see on screen. Because I'm not an idiot, Scott, at the end of the show, you know what I went out and bought? I went out and bought a Red Rider BB gun and I had the whole cast sign it because people are like, where do you come up with it? I'm like, because I'm going to have this for the rest of my life. Someday I'm going to buy a house with a movie room. Boom. And I'm going to have it. <laughs> wow. Oh, was it hard to find? No, it was easy. I bought one for Ken, the director, too. <laughs> oh, yes. That's so great. That's so great. <laughs> I think you told me that you did that. I don't remember. I don't think I've ever seen that before. I think Ken's a sign too. And then the last thing I want to say, and I'm not trying to monopolize here. Slap, I agree with you on what the best scene of the movie is. I agree with you 100%. But you did not play that scene out long enough when you were talking about it just now, which is what makes it the best scene. You know what makes it the best scene? Not the wine, not the sitting there. But like when you see that movie for the first time, you were like, pardon my French, did they just fuck Ralphie? Did they not get him the gun that I just spent the last hour and a half? And when they're sitting there yep. and they're sitting there and the mom leaves the room. Oh, no, she was still there. She's with him. And he's like, what, 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 what is that? Is that, what is that? And, and you're like, are you shitting me? Is this is this really happening for Ralphie? Like that whole thing, like which one of us as a kid doesn't want the, the, the Christmas present that they've got in the closet? Like they let you open up. Could you imagine the amount of patience as a parent to let your kid open everything and be like, you know what? I think there might be one more thing. I did that for Alice one year. We had a, a we had a dollhouse. I had it out on the front step of my townhouse because I couldn't wrap it. It was too big. And we're like, maybe there's something else out there. Like that whole thing that they led him to believe. How was your Christmas, Ralph? Did you get everything you wanted? Yeah, mostly. And then they're like, the one last present behind the couch. Shut up. That's it. 
Yeah, that you know, it's funny. I'm so glad you brought that up because that brings it back to mom and dad a little bit for me because you guys talked earlier about, you know, mothers being the protectors, right? And our mother was a protector. Mom would never let us got a dangerous toy, whatever it might be. But like our dad, Scott, was a bit of a rebel rouser. Like our dad was a big kid. He liked fireworks. He liked throwing mannequins against subway trains, as I said to to Nick a couple weeks ago. Like that was Roger Kamek, big kid, loved go-karts, right? And like he would have been the kind of father that – and he probably did get us some things that we probably shouldn't have had that was a little bit – dangerous and mom wouldn't have liked that. So that really, that sequence rings true to me just because I think that's exactly how our parents would have played it out. Do you remember when I wanted a slingshot? Do you remember the slingshot? I do. So Scott, when we lived in Long Island, then we can wrap this up, but we had woods. Like we were on Patricia Street and then the next street was Pearl Street and then there were the woods. It was just the woods, capital T, capital W, the woods. And it was it was a shortcut to get to 7-Eleven we were okay to go there during the day, but you had to watch it. There was a lot of older kids there, whatever. There was a stretch when everybody was getting a slingshot. And I'm not talking about like a wrist launcher with the metal. This was like the old Dennis the Menace wood with a slingshot. And man, I fought hard to get one of these things. And they're like, nope, you'll shoot your eye out. You'll get hurt, whatever. And then I wore them down. And Scott, by the time they said yes to that slingshot, and I don't know how long in my kid mind it took me to get it. But by the time they got it to me, all the other kids, yeah, we're not playing with slingshots anymore. And I remember going out to the woods like like once, like shooting at cans or something. I'm like, well, it sucks now. Like you guys <laughs> made me wait so long with a slingshot. I don't even want it anymore. It was the worst played present I ever had. Does Oliver want to play with the Red Rider? Uh... <laughs> Listen, unless it's on PS5, Scott, he don't want to play with it. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> If there's a Red Rider BB gun game on PS5, he wants to play it. But if it's not hooked up to a wire, he why would he want it? Why would he go outside? No. There's <laughs> no, no reason. Well, you, but there's no way a parent today is going to allow their kids to go out a couple of blocks over to the woods. No. I mean – no, like just, no. Like, I had I grew up uh, in Long on Long Island too, and I and we had the woods, um, you know, a couple of blocks away. We'd ride our bikes there. We'd hang out there. We'd eventually come home. When my mother wanted us to come home, she would re- literally ring a bell. She'd stand <laughs> on the front door and ring a bell, and people would say, "Oh, Scott, the bell!" You know, and I'd have to like ride back home. Where is that bell today? I would love to hear the bell. I would love to hear the chimes of oh, that my bell. Father, my father's house has the bell. That's awesome. Get me, send me an audio of the bell someday. I will. Yeah, I don't need no explanation, just the bell ringing. Okay. That will be fantastic. <laughs> this is so much fun, gentlemen. I really appreciate um, your time. Scott, a special thank you for uh, for taking us through this conversation tonight. I really, you did an amazing job as I knew that you would. And it was so nice to have you back on the show. I think my mom would have really enjoyed listening to this episode. And if anything, I think she probably would have listened to it more than once. <laughs> And Jim, how do you think that would have played out? Dad would have been like, well, Dennis, how, how do I, how do I find it? Oh, oh my God. God. Right. I don't know. I don't think it would have played out. I think they would have had to call John. Everybody. I want to wish you and yours a wonderful holiday season. Um, my heartfelt thanks to everybody for listening to back by popular demand all year. Uh, it's not lost on me that there are thousands and millions of podcasts out there. So it means a lot to me that you would spend 90 minutes of your limited time to hear me and my guests drone on and on about movies that we love. So I really, truly thank everybody for your support. It means a lot to me. I, I can't state that enough. Um, I really enjoy hosting and making the show. And I've had some terrific episodes this year that I'm really proud of. And I've actually gotten to reconnect with some old friends, which is even, even better. And that just makes me smile. So um, I'm going to be back. If you guys keep listening, 
I'll keep making new episodes. Scott, start thinking about what movie we want to have you back back on for. Jim and I, are, we've already made an arrangement that we're going to do the Hunt for Red October at some point next year because I want to dedicate that to my dad. One thing only. The same way that we dedicated this episode to our mother. Jim, Scott, thank you again. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you for letting me have this conversation with you guys. It was, it was actually an honor to, to, to hear your, your thoughts on that, especially as it related to your experience with your mom. I just realized how close Scott is to Scott. So I know. That's crazy because you're only one T and he's only one T. I'm going to start calling you Scott Saffon. When I first saw his name listed in the credits, I, it wore the, the character's name, Scott Farkas. I was like, what? It was, oh, so, yeah. He had yellow eyes. Jim, this was our third Video Village reading that we've, we've done was, all time, it right? Was second, it, number three? it was second or third? It wasn't was second. second. Second was Dogs. We oh, started yeah, with Glengarry right. Glen Ross. This was pre-Scott Saffon. Then we did Dogs. And then I think Christmas Story was... I, that was my first one was Dogs. It started my tradition. The first three or four that I did with you guys, uh, you always had me playing an African-American character, which I thought was always very interesting. Um, so. <laughs> it's because you're so versatile. That's all it is. And you just, you know, you have a lot of talents. <laughs> Oliver did um, a Christmas story with us. He did. He was in the dining room and I was in the kitchen. Yeah, I bought him the I bought him the hat with the ear things on it to help him get That's in the character. Oh, so great. Happy holidays, everybody. Guys, happy holidays. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for inviting me to be part of it. See ya. Good night. Take the whole Something else.